gospel with the lyrics of those God gospel drenched songs still echoing in our ears and in our hearts. I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the greatest gospel treatise in the Bible, and that is the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking today at the last section of this opening uh, section of Romans about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And again, we're going to have um, uh, an opportunity um, by way of application to simply praise the Lord when this is all over. Um, There are texts in scripture that are filled with imperatives, uh, things that we need to do. Um, You're not going to hear any of that this morning. Um, This is what Christ has done. And it's not something, there's nothing here in this passage for us to do. It's just something for us to know, to understand, and to praise and thank God for. And so let's read uh, our text for this morning. It's Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 12, and I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. The free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, this is a extremely significant portion of this letter and your word. And so I pray, Lord, even as your spirit, I sensed, illuminated me this week to see things that I had never seen before in this passage. Lord, would those things come forth through this message and may your spirit illuminate all of us, Lord, that we might understand exactly what Paul meant by what he said here. And while it's ultimately beyond our comprehension in this lifetime to fully grasp the the depth of, of truth here, I pray that we would understand enough Lord, to cause us to praise you and to thank you more than ever and to be more motivated than ever to tell other people the good news that no matter who they are or what they've done, they are never beyond your grace in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in today's culture, as you know, we are conditioned to think that we are all isolated individuals who can do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Isn't that true? Well, the truth is, our actions and decisions do affect everyone around us, especially those that we're fused together with in our families, in our community, in our company, on our team, um, and even here in our church. 
What one individual does or doesn't do can impact the lives of all those that they're closely connected to. As the old saying goes, one bad apple, what? Spoils the whole bunch. Well, at the same time, it only takes one great leader to inspire everyone under their sphere of influence. Well, we know that this is graduation season, which is a time for both students and, 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 and their parents to think about and, and, and thank those who have influenced or impacted them the most and helped them become who they are. Well, um, you may have not graduated, uh, nor maybe had a graduate this time around, but there are two people who have influenced and impacted all of our lives more than anyone ever has or ever will. Those two people are Adam and Jesus Christ. Or as they're referred to in Scripture, the first Adam and the last Adam or the second Adam. And, and Paul simply summarized the point that he was making here in his letter to the Romans in his letter to the Corinthians. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul compared... And contrasted the life of Adam and the life of Christ. And I think the, the key to unlocking the, the, the meaning of this difficult to understand passage is the last phrase of verse 14. Notice what he said here. He said, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam is a type of Christ. A type, we know, is someone or something that points to or foreshadows someone or something else. They have similarities. They resemble one another. And the main similarity or the main way that Adam resembles Jesus is that what each of these men did affected the lives of countless others. Let me say that again because that is really the simplest way I can state the main point of this passage. That what each of these men did affected the lives of countless others. Adam's one act of disobedience in the garden damned all of us to hell. And Jesus' one act of obedience on the cross made salvation available to all of us. As you may have noticed when we read the text at the beginning that Paul used... One word more than any other word in these ten verses. What was the word? What's the word that's repeated over and over again? It's the word one. Twelve times Paul used the word one in order to emphasize how all of us are connected to Adam and connected to Christ and therefore all of us are affected by each what each one of them did in our place. The other phrase he used uh, three times is the phrase much more in verse 15 much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many verse 17 much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life to the one Jesus Christ and then in verse 20 he says where sin increased grace abounded all the more or much more And so Paul wanted us to realize that by placing our faith in what Jesus did in our place allows us to gain far more than we ever lost as a result of what Adam did in our place. They both did something in our place. But we gain far more from what Christ did. And in order to prove that it's possible... For one's man death, one, one man's death to provide salvation for many, Paul used Adam to establish the basic principle here that one man's actions 
can and in fact do affect many other people. Now I say all that, hopefully uh, in the simplest terms possible, because these ten verses are generally recognized by Bible scholars and commentators as the most profound and the most difficult passage in Romans. If not the entire New Testament. One commentator described them like this. He said that first reading it seems complex and enigmatic. In other words, difficult to understand or, 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 or to interpret. And as far as complete human comprehension is concerned, the truths of this passage are beyond reach. But on the other hand, the truths themselves are wonderfully simple and clear when accepted in humble faith as God's word. And then he gives this great analogy. He says, just as it is possible to accept and live in accordance with the law of gravity without fully understanding it, so it is possible for believers to accept and live according to God's truth without fully understanding it. I would defy anybody to get up here and explain to us the law of gravity. We might have a limited understanding of it, right? But we don't fully understand it, and yet we live by it. In the same way, I don't think there's anyone who could fully explain the meaning of this text in all of its depth, and yet we need to live according to it. Well, if you have your little roadmap for Romans, pull that out for a second, because again, this is just helps us see the forest for all the trees here, or it helps us not lose sight of the forest for, for all the trees. And notice we're in our final section under justification or the gift of righteousness and we've seen how justification is described, how it's illustrated, and then last week we saw how justification is enjoyed and that we exult in God, we jump for joy uh, for what we've received um, through justification by faith alone. And finally, this morning, we're going to look at justification contrasted, and we're going to look at the subject of imputation, which we've talked about already uh, in the weeks previous but uh, again, this is one of the most important theological concepts in the Bible. And it's very important that we understand this, this, this word or this doctrine of imputation. Uh, again, it's a banking term used to describe uh, a sum of money that is transferred or credited to someone else's account. And the Bible describes three specific acts of imputation. Number one, Adam's sin was credited to the entire human race. Number two, man's sin was credited to Christ on the cross. And then thirdly, Christ's righteousness is credited to believers. So Adam's sin credited to the entire human race, man's sin credited to Christ on the cross, and then Christ's righteousness credited to believers. And in this particular passage, Paul focused on how Adam's sin was imputed to all men for the purpose of showing how Christ's righteousness could be imputed to all those who place their faith in Him. And so again, to try to make it as simple as possible, I've just chosen to divide this passage into two sections here. Uh, verses 12 through 14, which really is the foundation of uh, this text, and, and I'm going to spend, uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at verses 12, 13, and 14, um, uh, because it's how we were all ruined by Adam's fall. And the argument that Paul makes in verses 12, 13, and 14 really uh, is, is simply uh, applied and, and illustrated uh, and reiterated in verses 15 through 21, how we can all be rescued by Christ's death. And so let's look at these Two divisions this morning. First of all, how we all are ruined by Adam's fall. And again, he begins with the word, therefore, in verse 12. Um, noting a transition uh, in his thoughts. And I think this is um, uh, indicating he's wrapping up uh, his thoughts on the gospel message that he's been explaining um, how, in other words, why we need to be saved and uh, how we are saved. And so we know that in the opening chapters of Romans, Paul has been explaining how all of us are under God's condemnation because of our sinful rebellion against Him. That's basically verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. 
But he's also explained how God graciously provided salvation through the death of his son on the cross for all who believe in him. And that's chapter 3, verse 21, um, all the way uh, up to verse 11 of chapter 5, what we looked at last week. And so here in the remaining verses of this this, this opening section, uh, focusing on how God justifies guilty sinners by grace through faith alone, in, in Christ alone, uh, Paul explained kind of one more time, just to make sure we don't miss it, how we all became guilty sinners to begin with. He's never really answered that question. How, how did this, how do we get this way? How did we become guilty to begin with and, and how we can all be forgiven and made right with God through faith in what Christ did for us on the cross? How is that possible? One man's death, thousands of years ago, how can that have an effect on us today? Again, Paul's main goal here is to show how Jesus' death provided salvation for many. And in order to do that, he had to first show how Adam's sin produced condemnation for all. Again, so really what he, all he's trying to do here in these last few verses, he's just, he's just trying to show how Jesus' death provided salvation for many. But in order to do that, he had to first show how Adam's sin produced condemnation for all. And so that's what he, he gets to right away. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So here we have the origin, if you will, of sin. We know Ultimately, sin originated not on earth, it originated where? In heaven, through Satan, who wanted to be like God. And so God kicked him out of heaven, and after he was cast out of heaven, as some have said, he landed in the garden, where he tricked Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, into sinning as well. And I'm sure you're familiar enough with Genesis Chapter 2 and 3, we see how God created Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden and told him that he could eat from any tree he wanted to except for the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil, right? And, uh, and, and if he ever did eat from that tree, God said he would what? He would die. Well, Satan convinced Adam's wife that if they ate from that tree, they would be just like God. How ironic. That's what exactly what... The devil wanted. He wanted to be like God. And that's what got him kicked out of heaven. And so he comes to earth. And he tries to convince man to be like God as well. And so she picked some of the fruit. And she ate it. And she gave it to her husband to eat. And as you know. The moment that Adam bit into that fruit. Sin entered the world. And so did death. Adam was... The door through which sin entered into the world and sin was the door through which death entered the world. You see, up until that point, there was no sin and there was no death in this world. Adam and Eve were sinless. They were eternal creatures who lived in perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. But as a result of what is commonly referred to as the original sin, they became sinners who were immediately separated from God and each other. You remember the first thing they did when they, after they ate the the fruit? They looked down at themselves and they realized they were what? They were naked and they immediately went and sewed fig leaves and made clothes for themselves. So they hid themselves from each other and then when God came looking for them in the garden, what did they do? They hid. And so they hid their bodies and they hid themselves showing that they were now separated from God and their fellow human beings. And the death they initially experienced was spiritual in nature. They didn't drop dead the moment they bit that fruit, but they did drop dead spiritually. They they experienced spiritual death, which is separation from God. And they eventually experienced physical death as well. And they would have experienced eternal death, or separation from God in hell, 
were it not for God's grace in sending Jesus to experience the punishment for Adam's sin. And so when we think about death, we need to understand the word death is, is, is really used in Scripture, particularly the New Testament, as a euphemism for separation. And it's again, separation from, from, from God, that spiritual death, separation from our bodies, that physical death, and ultimately separation from God eternally in hell. All of that is a part of this idea of death. And so he says, so death, this death that came, spread to all men. So it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were separated from God and who would experience physical death and ultimately eternal separation from God in hell. That, that death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. Well, as you know, every person who has ever lived with the exception of Enoch and Elijah died. In fact, you look at Genesis 5 and, and it records mankind's uh, or, or Adam's descendants, Adam and Eve's descendants, and, and it lists all these guys. Uh, they did this and they lived these many years and they died. And they did this and, and, and they, did, uh, they, they lived these many years and they died. And they did this and they lived these many years and they died. They died, they died, they died, they died, they died, they died. They died. The Spirit of God was making a point that sin kills people. And unless Jesus returns first, guess what? Sin's going to kill you too. We're all going to die. The reason why we all die is because, what does it say? All sin. Now, Put your thinking on cap, thinking caps on for a second, because this is where um, I think this phrase, because all sin is often misunderstood, and if we don't understand it correctly, we might be guilty of an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, which was uh, 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 spawned by a, a church father named Pelagius. So listen carefully to, to what I'm about to say, because I want to make sure we understand what Paul was saying here. He says, therefore, death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, in what way did all of us sin? Well, the reason why we die is not because we all sin just like Adam sinned, which we do, by the way, or because we've inherited a sinful nature from Adam, which, by the way, we have. The reason why we die is because Adam sinned and as our representative in the garden, we shared in his sin as well in the consequences of his sin. That's why Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the consequence of sin. This phrase, because all sinned, isn't referring to the, the many individual sins that we commit, but the single sin that Adam committed. We, you ready for this? We die because of Adam's sin, not our own sin. Now, I know some of that might be rubbing some of you wrong right now. Well, wait a minute, but I'm a sinner and that's why I die. Well, let's see what Paul is saying here through the rest of this passage. Let me say it another way. We die not because we all sin like Adam, but because we all sinned with Adam. Are you tracking? We die not because we all sin like Adam, but because we all sin with Adam. This is what theologians refer to as the federal headship of Adam, which means that Adam served as our representative. Now, we have a federal government right here in the United States, and whenever the federal government namely the President of the United States, signs a bill into law, he is acting on behalf of every U.S. citizen. Whether we agree with that law or not, whether we're actually there standing behind him as he's writing that, we're, he's representing us. And so Paul's point is not that, that, that we would have done the same thing if we were in the garden. That's how typically this passage is, 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 is explained. Well, if we were there, we would have done the same thing, which... I agree, we would have, but that's not Paul's point. His point is that all of us were in the garden. It's not if we were in the garden. No, we were in the garden sinning alongside Adam. We are Adam, Adam is us. 
Adam sinned in our place, just like Jesus died in our place. Do you see where he's going here? You can't have one without the other. We were not literally there when either of these two events took place. The sin in the garden, Adam's sin in the garden, or Christ's death on the cross. But we were there spiritually. And that's why Paul could say what he said in the next chapter, chapter 6, that we died, what? With Christ, and we were buried, what? With Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. Were you there when Jesus died? Were you there when he was buried? Were you there when he rose from the dead? Well, then why does Paul say we died with Christ? In other words, when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried. And when Christ was raised, we were raised. Even so, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Now, you're probably aware of this, that there are a growing number of people, not just in the world, but even in the church today, um, who, who don't believe Adam was an actual historical person. They just take the book of Genesis as a, as a fable, as an allegory. It's not literal. We need to understand that to reject a real Adam and a real fall is a wholesale rejection of the gospel. You can't have the good news of the gospel if you don't have a real Adam and a real fall. Paul's whole argument here hinges on the fact that both Adam and Jesus were real. They were actual historical persons in the same exact sense. And he drew a parable between the two, which which can't be done. You can't do that between a Jesus who did exist and an Adam who didn't exist. Because if Adam didn't exist and didn't fall as the Bible says he did, then none of us are guilty sinners who need to look to the last Adam for salvation. But the truth is, we are condemned based on what Adam did, not what we do. Even so, we are justified based on what Jesus did, not what we do. Did you see the connection? We're condemned based, not based on, or excuse me, not based on what we do, but on what Adam did. We're justified not based on what we do, but on what Jesus did. S. Lewis Johnson, who was a famed professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for years and also pastored the historic um, uh, church up in, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the church, um, Believer's Chapel up in, up in the Dallas area. This is what he said in his commentary. Quote, he says, We fell through no personal fault of our own. We rise through no personal merit of our own. Interesting. You see the connection between Adam and Jesus? Well, if you're still having a hard time swallowing this whole concept that that we die because of Adam's sin and not our own personal sin, notice what he says next, verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So Paul was just saying there was sin in the world before God ever delivered the law of Moses, or law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And even though there was no uh, clearly defined or revealed standard to judge man's guilt, even though it's impossible to be accused of violating a law that does not exist or to be punished for breaking a law that is yet to be posted, guess what was happening from the time of, of Adam to the time of Moses when he received the law? What was still happening? Lots of people were dying. In fact, everybody was dying. Which proves that they were guilty sinners who were being punished by death for Adam's sin and not their own. Why? Notice he says, because they had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, Adam was specifically told not to do something, and yet he deliberately disobeyed God's clear command. And his descendants sinned, yes, 
But before the law was given, no one deliberately disobeyed a clear, specific command given directly by God like Adam had. And yet they still died. Why? Because they were guilty by association with Adam's sin. I think the fact that babies die before they have the opportunity to commit sin proves that every human being is under the curse caused by Adam's sin, that we are born in sin. We are, by nature, objects of God's wrath. We are guilty by association. But then notice this key phrase, which again, I think is the hinge on which this passage turns. It's really the, 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 the summary of what he's saying in verses 12, 13, and 14, and also uh, launches into what he's about to say in verses 15 through 21. Again, he says, Adam is a type of him who was to come. And again, it's this representative principle, which is the cause of our condemnation, is also the cause of our salvation. We've, we've got this principle of, of a representative which is the cause of our condemnation. We, Adam represented us in the garden. And it's the same principle that causes our salvation, that, that, that Christ represented us at the cross. The same way we were made sinners through Adam's act of disobedience is the same way we are made righteous through Christ's act of obedience. And even though we did nothing based on Adam's sin, we are declared a sinner his sin was imputed or credited to us. And similarly, when even though we've done nothing based on Jesus' death, we are declared righteous. His righteousness is imputed or credited to us. And so that's essentially the, the point of this passage. And what remains is, is, is Paul just essentially saying that same thing over and over and over and over again, repeating himself to make sure we understand how much greater what Christ did for us is than what Adam did for us. And while there are similarities uh, between Adam and Christ, there are, there are some very major differences. And I think the main difference that Paul highlights here uh, in the verses that remain is that Christ's work is far superior to Adam's work. Our ruin in Adam is great. But our rescue in Christ is even greater. And so let's look at how we all can be rescued by Christ's death. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So again, Paul is just repeating these concepts that, that every human being bears the guilt of sin and is subject to death. But Christ's act of redemption was immeasurably greater than Adam's act of condemnation because it put on display God's grace, which we know as his undeserved, unearned kindness and favor to helpless and hopeless sinners. And so put on display his grace. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from, the, from many transgressions resulting in justification. In other words, one sin, one sin, just, just one sin condemned all mankind. Which should help us realize how much God hates sin. All it takes is just one sin for Him to, to judge us and to send us to hell. One commentator writes this, he said, God hates sin so much that it took only one sin to condemn the entire human race and separate them from Him. 
greater even than God's hatred of sin is his love for the sinner. Despite the fact that God hates sin so much that any one sin could damn the human race, his loving grace towards men is so great that he provides not only for the redemption of one man from one sin, but for the redemption of all men from all sins. One man, one sin, condemnation, right? Many men, many sins, right? Redemption. He says, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 16. Again, Christ delivered many men from the the condemnation of many sins. Verse 17, he says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. As a result of Adam's sin, our lives were ruled by sin and overshadowed by death. The writer of Hebrews explains it this way. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Therefore since the children share in flesh and blood. He himself Christ. Likewise also partook of the same. He took on flesh. That through death he might render powerless. Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death. Were subject to slavery all their lives. So what Paul is saying that. That now that we have received God's gift of salvation in Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of sin and death. We're no longer under the reign of the devil, if you will, or the reign of, of sin. But we've been made alive in Christ and free to live holy and righteous lives in obedience to him as our new master. We're going to learn a lot more about that in Romans chapter 6. But Colossians 1.13 says this simply, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. See, there was two kingdoms. Adam had a kingdom and, 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 and the second Adam or the last Adam had a kingdom. And they ruled over those kingdoms. And through our union with Christ, not only do we no longer live in Adam's kingdom, we were transferred from Adam's kingdom to Christ's kingdom. So we we live and reign with Christ now positionally. But one day in the future we will actually literally reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And regain what Adam lost. Which was paradise. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression the result in condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Notice that. That we are not made right with God by many righteous acts done by us. But by one righteous act done by Jesus. The benefits of which are credited To the account of all who place their faith in him. And it's all done by grace. In other words, God giving us what we don't deserve. Now you need to know that some use verse 18 as a proof text for universalism. Are you familiar with that that expression, universalism? It's basically the belief that ultimately everyone gets saved. Everyone ends up in heaven. And they, they get that from that last phrase. Even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Well, obviously Paul wasn't saying that everyone will be saved because that would contradict everything else he's already said about God's wrath against man's sin and the necessity for people to believe in order to be saved. I mean, the theme verse of the of, of Romans alone disproves universalism. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Does it say period? No, to everyone who what? Believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
See, Christ's gracious gift of salvation, His offer of salvation is available to everyone, but not everyone appropriates appropriates it. Not everybody applies it. Not everybody believes the gospel. And in the same way, Adam's sinfulness affects those who are in him, those he represents. Christ's righteousness benefits only those who are in him. By the way, you can't help being in Adam. The fact that you were born and you're sitting here alive on planet earth, you're in Adam. No fault of your own. You were born into a world that was under the curse of Adam's sin, but you can help staying in Adam. You don't have to stay in Adam. Even though you start in Adam, the way to to not be in Adam is to be what? Born again. The only way to get out of Adam and into Christ is to be born again, to have a second birth. And of course, Jesus talked to Nicodemus a little bit about that in John chapter 3. You must be born again. You must be born a second time. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made right sinners, excuse me, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. What was that obedience of the one? Well, I think the ultimate act of obedience was Christ's willingness to die on the cross according to the Father's will. You may remember Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that unlike Adam and Eve who were trying to grasp at equality with God, we want to be like God. Jesus, what? Didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so through, it was through that one act of obedience, his death on the cross, that many will be made Right with God. And then in verse 20, Paul goes back to the subject of the law because he knew he had many Jewish readers and he didn't want to be accused as an antinomian, someone who just rejected the law, but he wanted to uh, make sure they understood that the law played a very significant role. Uh, in his gospel and again he reiterates it in verse 20 the law came in so that the transgression would increase again we've already learned this from uh, previous passages that the purpose of the law was to make us more aware of our sin and our need of a savior chapter 3 verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed And all the world will be accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said in Galatians 3.24 the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. In other words, not by trying to keep the law. God never intended the law to save us but simply point us to the one who could save us. And once we come to faith in Christ, you say, what happens to the law? Well, I think he points us back to the law to show us how we should live our lives to please him. Out of love. That we obey because we love him. John MacArthur said it well here uh, in his commentary. He said, God gave the law through Moses as a pattern of righteousness but not as a means of righteousness. The law has no power to produce righteousness, but for the present, or excuse me, but for the person who belongs to God and sincerely desires to do his will, it is a guide to righteous living. And so when Paul says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, 
In other words, God gave Moses a law on Mount Sinai to make things worse. If they, if they weren't bad enough because of what Adam did in the garden, let's just make things worse. Let's just stir up sin. More sin. Rather than stopping sin, the law was never intended to stop sin. It was intended to stir up sin. And it's like that classic section in Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian goes into the interpreter's house and he walks into this room where there's just like an inch or so of dust on the floor and he thinks, well, how can we, how can we clean up this floor? And he sees somebody come in with a broom and he's like, hey, that guy's got a good idea. Let's sweep this stuff up. So the guy starts sweeping and, 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 and it makes it worse. There, now there's not just dust on the floor, there's dust in the air. It's all over the place and they're choking to death on this dust. Until someone comes in with some water and, and, and douses the, the dust and it lays it all down the floor and, and makes it possible to sweep it up. Well, the, that was the representation of the gospel. Sweeping up that dust just made things worse. But that's what Paul was saying in verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Not just abounded, but literally superabounded. That, that's the original language. It's superabounded. It, it, he's describing this unending, overflowing grace. And beloved, you need to know that no matter who you are or what you've done, you are never beyond. God's grace. God's grace is greater than anything you could ever do. That's the good news of the gospel. I mean, try sharing that with some folks this week. Hey, I don't care who you are or what you've done. You're not beyond the grace of God. God can save you too. As one Puritan said, he said this, quote, There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. Amen. There's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in me. I'm sure some of you are familiar with John Bunyan, who served a 12-year prison term in Bedford, uh, England, in a little jail there in Bedford, England, for preaching without a license. This is when the Church of England was cracking down on on these Puritans who were... uh, not following the the rules and the regulations and the, the traditions and the ceremonies of the Church of England, and so they put these guys in jail. And when he was in jail, he wrote out his personal testimony of how God graciously saved him from a life of sin, and how he God had spared him from drowning um, and and being bit by a poisonous snake, and how he had almost got shot and killed. Um, and this was all before, this is all while he was living a, a debauched lifestyle. And he just talked about how God was so merciful and so gracious to him. And you know what the title of his testimony was? Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. And he, he, he got that title straight from this verse. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then Paul just simply summarizes this contrast between Adam and Jesus one last time, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm sure growing up you all learned like I did the classic mother goose rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. Remember that? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men, what? Couldn't put Humpty back together again. Well, that makes for a great nursery rhyme, but it's not the truth of God's word in the sense that Adam had a great fall, but our great God and king didn't need any horses or many men to rescue Adam by his grace he sent his son to live and die in order to break the power of sin and death and put us back together again aren't you happy about that aren't you thankful for that 
Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine says this. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been received by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Beloved, we have completed our study of Romans chapter 1 through 5, which is all about the glorious gospel, specifically... How a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. Are you familiar with the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. God's grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. And this familiar hymn ends with this line. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment His grace receive. If you've not yet received this glorious grace. Of God through his son Jesus Christ. May today be the day. Of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord thank you for. This tricky text. That's required us. To think deeply this morning but. I pray we wouldn't miss just the simplicity and and purity of devotion to Christ here. That, that, that This should just well up in our souls to want to praise you and thank you for our great salvation and to tell others how they can be saved by a good and gracious God that doesn't care what they, who they are or what they've done, but that Christ died for them even while they were yet sinners so they could be brought back to God and be reconciled to him. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish uh, your work in our hearts from this text. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.